It is good to worship with you this morning. Um, man, what a, what a small taste of heaven, praying, praying together. It's probably the most spiritual thing we'll do this morning. Uh, please, uh, if, if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to James 5. And we continue our series in the book of James called Faith in Action. James... <laughs> He's been laboring over the last four chapters. We're we're going through the book of James. We've gone through four chapters, and he's been laboring to convince his readers, to convince us that a true, genuine faith in Christ is not simply one that hears, but does. True, genuine faith is not merely showing up to church, but functioning as the church, the body of Christ. True, genuine faith is not a discussion about religious ideas, but as James says, it is a manifestation of true religion to follow Christ with our words and our care for others and to look different from the world around us. And one might wonder, we might be wondering, what reveals our true allegiance? What's going to tell me what I'm actually like? What might show me whether my heart is most aligned with this world and myself or Jesus? What might show me, not what path I say I'm on, but what might show me what path my feet are actually walking down? And we have considered in James two paths continually through the book, through the letter. In chapter 2, we consider two ways of showing care for others. In chapter 3, we contrasted two ways to use our tongue. Or two different kinds of wisdom, earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. In chapter 4, we considered the ways of fighting or making peace in our church and relationships. And last week, we wrestled with the ways of being either self-confident or dependent on the Lord. We come to a passage this week as we begin chapter 5 in James that also demonstrates where our hearts are truly aligned and what path we are actually following. Our sermon title this morning is Money Can Be a Problem. And likely, you already know this empirically. Uh, It has been said that more money is more problems. There's a song about it, I think. And whether you call it bread, dough, cash, 401ks, boats, or flexing with drip diamond chains, that's for the kids. Our relationship with money, Christian and non-Christian, reveals a lot about our heart. The main point, the main action that James is calling us to in this chapter is that faithful followers of Christ treasure Jesus Faithful followers of Christ treasure Jesus. Now, before we jump into the text, let me point out uh, and address two questions that a skeptic may have. You may be visiting, or you're new, or you're considering Christianity. Maybe you've been here, and you're just a skeptic of Matt Nagel, or this church, or the scriptures. And there might be two questions that come to mind. What's wrong with nice stuff? What's wrong with nice stuff? Well, nothing, nothing's wrong with night's stuff. But as Christians, we really wrestle with this, this, uh, this, this tension of gifts 
and obstacles. It is a sweet privilege to have a measure of wealth, material, and kind gifts that God would choose to give us. But we have to admit that oftentimes earthly riches are obstacles to us. So what's wrong with nice stuff? Nothing. But we have to consider that there are obstacles to the Christian life. Just as we've gone through James and pride has been an obstacle, impartiality, favoring one person or the other, being a hearer of the word and not a doer, being worldly wise but not heavenly minded, those are all obstacles to the Christian life. And so, so is money, it seems. Second question that a skeptic might have, <laughs> is, this, is this a church money grab? You know, I, I knew it. I knew if I came to church, someone would have their hand out and they would ask for money. Maybe you think that. Well, if you've been attending here any period of time, you know that's not the case. But we do wonder. Well, is there, are they really about building their own little kingdom or the kingdom of God? And to the skeptic, I would say, listen, as we go through the whole counsel of God's word, we can't simply skip over passages that are convicting or challenging or even ones that make us squirm a little in our seats or even ones that we disagree with. So rather than skipping around and being accused of playing favorites with the scripture, we, we go through every passage. So no, no money grab. But we have to address this. Earthly riches. Earthly riches can be a problem. And James seems to point out in our passage in verses 1 through 6, several reasons why. And he does allude to several reasons. Uh, let me point them out. First, consider with me that money can be a problem because earthly riches bring misery. Read, read verse 1 with me. Come now, come, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, the first thing we have to consider as James starts this passage, we have to consider who James's audience is. Who are the rich? He says, come, come, you rich. Well, who is that? Who are the rich? Very likely, these rich people are the same rich people in James 2. In James 2, they were, the rich were being shown partiality. They were given favor of others. In James 2, 6 and 7, it was the rich people, uh, the non-believing rich who were oppressing and blaspheming God. Uh, oppressing uh, believers, that is. So these rich, it seems, in James 5, are not Christians, although they clearly are in the vicinity of Christians and attending worship services. Now, I'm not saying that rich people cannot be Christians. I'm simply saying in this passage, in this context, it's very clearly that James is addressing a group of rich people outside the church. So most likely he's not addressing faithful followers of Christ. But, but before some of you decide to pack up and leave, don't tune me out or, or, or tune out James as he harps on the oppressive, rich non-believers. You have to ask yourself a question. 
It's actually the question you need to ask whenever you open the scriptures and you read anything. Why is what I'm reading, why is it here right now? Why is it in this passage? Why would James, writing a letter to scattered Christians in the first century in the Middle East, why would James include some kind of like Old Testament diatribe against rich people? What does it have to do with the church? Well, the answer is a lot. It has a lot to do with you and I. James lets us listen in on a charge to rich, to rich people of the world, because as one man has said, the thirst for wealth is insatiable because it is a false god. And false gods cannot satisfy our desire for meaning or significance. So let's be honest just for a moment. Faithful followers of Christ are not immune to the trap of riches being the center of our meaning and our significance in life, especially in our 21st century American context, where our centered pursuit of wealth and comfortability probably aligns us more with the rich than we would like to admit. James argues that riches, more specifically, the ways in which we abuse and cling to riches, will bring us misery. Bring me misery. And verse 1 seems to imply that it's coming a lot quicker than we might think it is. There's a misery to riches. Well, maybe you're not convinced yet. Let's go down to the next verse. Notice how earthly riches in verse 2 rot away. James continues, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Okay, this is an interesting verse. And some of its implication is lost in translation. It could be translated this way. Your riches and garments have already rotten, they are now rotten, and they will be rotten forever. That's kind of what's, what, what James is thrusting at in that verse. The implication being that even our present riches have a rottenness to them, and they will be rotten on the final day. So, you know, I, you know we live in Minnesota, so I immediately think of the rottenness of winter on vehicles that shows up on a lot of your wheels, right? There's, uh, there's a sense in which our vehicles are already rotten, and you're saying, well, well man, I got, I got a brand new truck. There's no rust on it whatsoever. James would say that truck is rotten, it will be rotten, and it'll finally rot on, on the last day. But th that is interesting. And we have to ask, how exactly, how exactly are earthly riches rotten? Because they're not all bad. Well, I think earthly riches, I believe James is arguing that earthly riches are rotten because they hollow out and decay your heart. That's why riches are rotten. Earthly riches are rotten because they ultimately, they of themselves, they decompose, and they are temporary. You're not taking that truck with you, man. Like our, our treasures themselves will rotten away. Earthly riches are rotten because they numb our senses to the beauty of Christ. 
Why does Christ often seem unappealing to the rich? You know, Jesus did say, it is almost, I mean, it's like impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he against retirement accounts? He's like, he's like trying to put a camel through the needle of an eye. That's how hard it is for a rich person to go to heaven. Why? Because our riches rob us from seeing the true beauty of Christ. They numb us. Earthly riches are rotten because of the awful self-sufficiency it often creates. We're often self-made men and women. And our riches tell us that lie. Earthly riches are rotten because ultimately they turn our affections away from God. Pastor James, he is a pastor, he takes the time to plainly point to this misery, to this rottenness, this destruction, because he knows his readers and you and I will fight against the allure of the promises of riches that never, never come to fruition. Would we not admit, brothers and sisters, would we not admit that many of us felt much closer to the Lord in our poverty and desperation than we do in our comfort? Would we also not admit that many of us have seen our desire to know and to be faithful followers of Christ cool and soften when the reality of competing desires like riches and comfort choke us out? This verse forces us to reawaken and consider that many of the things that you and I hold on to, many of the things in which we cherish and pursue and rest in are already rotten because they don't last. But notice next in verse 3, earthly riches reveal your heart. Verse 3, James continues, your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. We are told that these riches will become worthless. They will corrode away and it will be a witness and evidence and it will be a a, a testimony. It will testify against us. That's quite a claim. That our possessions, our accumulation of riches, our heaping and hoarding, our laying up of earthly treasures says something about our heart. It reveals our heart. Our loyalty and to whom our real rest is in. We're pointed not just to riches themselves, but something underneath those riches. Something underneath that reveals our heart. Something much deeper and more significant. Riches reveal a heart that show up in our stewardship, our love, our cherishing, and the use and our relationship with riches. And in verse 3, we see hoarding. I, I get that right from the end of verse 3. You have laid up treasure in the last days. It's kind of a hoarding. Have you seen that show, Hoarders? That's what he's saying. He's saying that's us. 
Paul, in other writings, such as 1 Timothy 6, has some very plain words for how those of us who have a measure of wealth are supposed to use that wealth. They are to use their wealth to meet basic needs for food and clothing. We're to use our wealth to enjoy God. You hear that? To enjoy God in the gifts that he gives us. And we are to be, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, rich in good works and generous with those earthly riches. Now, those are three broad ways in which you and I are to use our riches. However, the hoarding in verse 3 reveals something in our heart. It rejects all three. Our hoarding, our selfishness, and our indulgent spending is evidence against us. Evidence that points to a heart that loves self more than God and neighbor. Look at that last phrase in verse 3 again. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, what exactly does James have in mind here? Well, in the Old Testament, the last days were often seen as the last days of judgment. A prophetic voice would come, the last days are coming, judgment is on its way. But oftentimes in the New Testament, we see the last days refer to the time of Jesus and his salvation. Let me give you a couple examples. I'll put the first one on the screen, Acts 2.17. Acts 2.17 says this. We'll be there in a second. There we go. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He continues in verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And just so you know, that's true. You know, we have Luke records in Acts, someone standing up and saying, Whatever you've been doing, regardless of what your life has looked like, Regardless of the sin that you struggle with, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. He stands up and says, anyone, at any time, who calls on Jesus' name, they will be saved. Forgiveness, eternal life, eternal joy, satisfaction beginning now, it's available to you. But notice he said, in the last days. Well, that started right in Acts 2, that the last days of Jesus and his salvation began in Acts 2. Well, let me point you to another one. Hebrews 1. We'll put that on the screen too. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. By his son. These last days, what's being spoken? Jesus, salvation, new hearts, forgiveness in these last days. So these first century writers are saying, they were saying, we're in the last days, the last days of salvation. We are in the days in which the body of Christ, you and I, will go out and be witnesses, share the hope of Jesus, and see people transformed. And saved. These are the last days in which we are on mission to bring the gospel to all nations, all peoples, all neighborhoods, all family members, and see the kingdom of God begin as Jesus rules and reigns over the hearts of his people. But back to our verse, verse 3. 
What are the rich doing in these last days? What are they doing in the last days before Christ comes? What are they doing in the day of salvation in light of the judgment that is to come? They are hoarding riches. That's what they're doing in the last days. They're hoarding riches. God help us center on Christ and not succumb to this same temptation. May we leverage our riches, as Paul says, to provide, to enjoy God and his gifts and to be generous. May we leverage our riches in these last days in a way that shows what we really care about. I spoke with someone after the first service and they said, do you want to know how spiritual I am? Look at my checkbook. And I know I haven't written a check in a while, I mean years. So, I mean, look at my app. <laughs> look, at, look at my statement. Where, where our money goes reveals a lot about our loyalty in our life. Uh, earthly riches, they do bring misery. They are raw and they do reveal our hearts. But notice next in verse 4 that earthly riches manifest greed. James, he continues, he says, Behold! The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, is it wrong to have money? Is it wrong to even own a business and make money? Is it wrong for me to hire a teenage punk to cut my grass? And I'll be taking applications in the coming months here. No, no, none of those things are wrong. Absolutely not. The issue in our verse here, in verse 4, is fraud. The issue is holding back what is due to someone else. The issue is greed in our hearts. Greed that robs others and cuts corners so that we can have more. This ties into hoarding, I think, really well. Think about it. Why would these rich people in verse 4 hold back their money? They hold back their money because they're under the false illusion that if they are fair to their workers, that if they are generous or even sacrificial in just obeying God in this matter, they think that will leave them wanting. They think that will leave them with lack. They think they will be without something that they need. Do we greedily hold back because we think and trust little in God's provision and blessing on our life? Well, if I'm honest, yes. Um, I think I do. And I'm probably not the only one here. Could it be that our greedy hearts hold tightly onto earthly riches because we don't trust God? That we don't believe God really provides, that he gives good gifts, that God supplies our needs and even our wants and our desires. So what do we do? We don't just hoard, but we find ways to hold out. We cheat on our taxes. We be stingy with others who are in need. It reveals that we have more greed in our hearts than we'd like to admit. More can be said, but I want us to look next at verse 5. Earthly riches, <laughs> earthly riches make you fat. They make you fat. Read verse 5. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. We're too fat, he says. And, you know, yeah, maybe. (laughs) As spring approaches, many of us are realizing that the hibernation months of a cold Minnesota winter has left us with uh, some unwanted pounds in fat. But that is not what James is referring to. Truly, there is some kind of relationship between earthly riches, living in luxury, living in self-indulgence, and how comfortably we eat and rest and perhaps have a little more fat than we should. James's point, however, is much more significant, much more eternal than that. He says, we have fattened our hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, I wonder, how might earthly riches make your heart fat? When you and I live on earth with little consideration of God and following him, that's a fat heart. When you and I indulge ourselves in a drunken stupor of riches and God seems far off, our heart is fat. When you and I live so comfortably and so fat that we no longer feel a daily need for God. This is even reflected in how we pray at meals. Do we ask for our daily bread or are we so fat and comfortable that we don't need God in even the small things? Like some ignorant cattle, we ravenously consume more and more and eat more and more and are not aware that we are making our coming slaughter and judgment more fitting. This phrase in verse 5, the, in the day of slaughter, is shorthand for just that. It's the coming judgment of God. It's an allusion to like an Old Testament passage like Ezekiel 7 that warns of coming destruction the coming destruction of wicked, angry, rebellious hearts. And what exactly is James doing here? Is he simply preaching some kind of fire and brimstone kind of message? Is he coming in with a heavy hand declaring, you know, just kind of vicious, unnecessary language? No, not at all. Remember, James is a pastor. He's an elder tasked to shepherd and pastor a needy people. He is a man warning faithful followers of Christ and those consumed by riches of the world. He says, watch out, watch out, guard your souls. Look at the fatness these earthly riches can produce. Look at the heart it produces in you and understand that your love for this world and earthly riches, well, as he said in James 4, is friendship with a world that conditions you and I to be spiritually fat, dull, and it makes us haters of God. Lastly, consider with me how earthly riches separate us from others. Look at verse 6. James finishes our passage by saying, You have condemned and murdered The righteous person, he does not resist you. Earthly riches do separate you and I from others. 
This likely, again, is from James 2, 6 and 7, and James 4, 4, and it's a direct accusation and a retelling of how wicked, rich individuals were opposing people in James's day. Whether it's a condemning word, a literal act of murder, or as Jesus said, murder of the heart, which is anger, the underlying heart condition from an allegiance to riches and this world is a tangible separation from people made in the image of God. Earthly riches will tangibly separate you from other people made in the image of God. Very likely, commentators suggest it is the rich that were essentially murdering poor individuals by frauding them and depriving them of proper wages to pay for their daily food and shelter. <laughs> you go, that's not me. I'm not hiring anyone. I'm not responsible for anyone's daily wage or living condition. But are there other ways in which you and I have allowed earthly riches to manifest itself in us so that we have hearts that have grown cold and callous to others? And listen, brothers and sisters, it's not just money that will separate us from one another. Think of this. Could it be that living in the midst of a culture of earthly riches, we see it affect the way we relate with one another and interact? How about this? How about living in such earthly riches in our culture that we have the luxury to think deeply and differ about COVID and politics and parenting philosophies and social issues? Well, and of course, the superior beauty of the Brainerd Lakes area to the Twin Cities. We don't need to get into that. But is it possible that you and I live in such earthly riches and comfort? We have the time to think, to differ, to have opinions. And those earthly riches, riches that we swim in, and often, oftentimes it separates us from one another. Could living in the midst of earthly riches make our hearts cold towards people we disagree with? Yes. The final point I'd like to suggest to you is implicit. It's not explicit in our text, but it's implicit. James's message here in these verses is this, namely that earthly riches are to point you and I to Christ. Again, why is this passage here, my friends? Why would James labor on the evils of riches? Now, James, he never condemns the rich per se, but he does condemn the riches that pull our hearts from the true treasure of Christ. Jesus himself in Matthew 6 said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. He also said, where your treasure is, there your heart also is. So God in his kindness has trusted many of you with earthly riches, whether it be financial or relational. Will you and I recognize these earthly riches for what they are? They are a kind gift and a kind stewardship from a kind heavenly father who desires your 
heart, your love, your worship. He desires your heart to find its fullness and satisfaction in him through Christ. Because, because many of you have found out this already empirically. You know this. Many of you have found out that sex, money, homes, retirement accounts, vacations, it doesn't satisfy anything. Because you're still bored. Or you're still waiting to find something that will bring true and full satisfaction. Am I not right? Turn to Christ. Turn to the real treasure, the lasting one. And as our hearts are full of love for God and neighbor, let us leverage our life and even our earthly riches for his glory and for our joy. Because faithful followers of Christ, they treasure Jesus. Would you pray with me that God would help us to do that this week? Treasuring Jesus is a really easy thing to say on a Sunday morning in front of a bunch of religious people. But what about Monday morning? What about tomorrow? When I'm wrestling with holding tightly to the things of this world and earthly riches, and I see the affections of Christ dwindling in my heart. What about many of us who have not trusted in Christ, but we think, oh, if I could just get to this, if the bank account had this, if I was able to go to this location, if my health was in this condition, many of us and many of the people that you love will spend tomorrow on the endless pursuit of the true treasure that won't bring satisfaction. Only Christ can. So pray with me that that would be true of us. Father, we, we do pray this in Jesus' name. And um, Lord, we confess uh, hypocrisy and inconsistency in this matter. We confess that how we use our money often reveals that our allegiance oftentimes is no different than the world. But God, in your kindness, you are shaping in us a greater love for you. God, you are already at work in our midst. We have changed. We are growing. We are holding more loosely onto the things of this world. We recognize more and more that this is the day, the last days, the days of Jesus and salvation. God, you have put us here in this community, in this church, not to build a kingdom, not to accumulate, not to even have comfort for ourselves, but to make Christ known. So would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to treasure Jesus above all things? We pray this in his name. Amen.